I'm Amy Jo Martin. Welcome to the Why Not Now show. You know that thing you've been thinking about doing? Yeah, that one. Why not now? Have you ever actually taken the time to ask yourself, what's stopping me? Let's talk it through. This is your chance to give that idea the attention it deserves and take action. Each episode, I have a chat with a fascinating person from entrepreneurs to athletes, celebrities, my parents, rocket scientists, and all walks of life. We talk through a critical time when they've asked themselves, why not now? We dissect that day or even that moment, step by step. It's been a lively week for the Why Not Now podcast. We had an interesting uh, kind of press series of hits, and and one of our episodes has, I guess you'd say, gone viral. Rolling Stone wrote about the Billy Corgan episode, and Billy talks about something in that episode that he has never shared before. So if you haven't listened, you might want to go back. It's one of my favorites, and um, the only episode so far that's had me in tears. So (laughs) quick plug for, for that one, for the Billy Corgan Why Not Now episode, and you'll see what everybody's talking about. This week on the show, we have Eric Wall. Eric is an artist and a best-selling author. I have been looking forward to this conversation with Eric for quite a while. He does have a new book coming out that's actually just come out. It's called The Spark and the Grind, and it's about igniting the power of, of disciplined creativity. So both having that creative spark side of things, but also that grind, that persistence and working at something. Eric's story is is truly interesting. He used to be uh, more of a participant in the business world, in the corporate world, and very successful. And then all of a sudden kind of saw his success in that realm kind of go to nothing. He lost everything in the dot-com bubble burst in the early 2000s. And, um, and then he rebuilt in a completely different direction, but built upon a lot of the things that he had learned. And um, now he is one of the most sought after keynote speakers out there. He has given talks at the huge companies like Disney, Microsoft, um, NBC, you name it. And he goes on stage and he paints while he talks in this fast pace style of painting. So he's this amazing artist and speaker, combines it, and it's quite the performance. Eric once created a 10,000 square foot Mona Lisa in the desert near LA out of rocks and dirt. He's just got this amazing spin on art and painting and creation. So here's Eric. Before we hop into this episode, let me fill you in on a little secret of mine. That's Headspace. It's a guided meditation app, and I never imagined that doing something for 10 minutes a day could increase my quality of life so much. I've always struggled with knowing when to make things happen versus when to let things happen. Sometimes things go very well when I push on the gas, and sometimes not so much. It gets me into trouble. Headspace has helped me with learning how to trust my intuition And I've tried meditation off and on for years. It's never stuck, but this time it has. I've made a very intentional shift in my morning routine, and that's to wake up, have my coffee, do headspace, journal, and then I check my email, my social media, all of my devices. It's been a big shift, but great result. My aunt used to say, don't let anything rent space in your head for free. That's valuable real estate. Headspace allows me to be a much better landlord of my thoughts, especially first thing in the morning. You can go to headspace.com forward slash why not now for a free trial. And if you stick around to the end of the show, I'll tell you how you can get a month for free. Eric, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Amy Jo. Thank you for, for having me. 
Absolutely. This is a chat that I've been really looking forward to. And let's hop right in, in the spirit of why not now? Can you share time when you had to ask yourself that question? And, and let's zoom in. I Knowing a bit of your journey, I'm sure there are so many, um, but I'm really curious as to which one you will share. Sure. Uh, and the first one, I, I guess the one that I would lead to is for people who don't know me, I was raised as uh, uh, an analytical numbers, logical person went to business school, uh, opened my own business and worked very successfully in that business until uh, a series of events uh, following the dot-com bomb implosion uh, brought me to my knees. I, I lost my my business, all of my security. Uh, for the most part, I think the thing that I lost the most um, or that suffered the most was my ego. Uh, just because from up until I was 30 years old, much of what success meant, much of what um, my identity was surrounded was, was achievement and success. And what could I measure to show how well I've uh, attacked this game of life? And it, that, because of uh, that loss of finances, success uh, was very elusive for, for me. Everything that I'd done up to that point felt like it was meaningless because I had nothing to show for it. And there, there was a time, a changing of operating system. This was not a triumphant, now I'm an artist. Now I'm going to explore, you know, ethereal abstract concepts. That was the only thing that I really found that gave me life or meaning or purpose. And there were a lot of probably very unhealthy channels or addictions that I could have turned to, to, to numb or insulate this, this deep, dark pain that I was feeling at the loss of my, myself and my dinged ego. Uh, but I, I turned to art and I also started philosophizing some of these ideas that I was coming up with. And the why not now was do, do I take these ideas that I'm, I'm feeling, experiencing, uh, and just kind of keep them to myself and my family. My, at that point, I had a, a wife and three young boys in diapers. Uh, or do I take it out and try and try and share it with others um, so that I can help them not get to the point where I was? Because I, I realized that the business world was filled with a lot of divide and conquering uh, merit, system of meritocracy and achievement uh, we know ourselves by how much we make, how much power, prestige, or possessions that we have. And as I was feeling these new thoughts, what, how would I share them? I didn't have any income. I didn't have any savings. I didn't have any angel investors. I didn't have anything by which to be able to amplify this message. It was a matter of just could I, could I share it in local communities? And we uh, realized at that point with no money, three kids, uh, my wife and I called my parents in our why not now moment. We called my parents and said, um, we want to give this a go. We're kind of excited about it after going through a lot of really difficult, challenging, dark <laughs> waters and nights. Um, we want to give this a go. But if it doesn't work, we're going to have we, we lived in San Diego. We're going to have to come back and move in with you. <laughs> um, and they said almost with a tone of welcomeness, sure. If, if that's the worst that's going to happen, then go for it. You know, we'll, we'll open some rooms for you if this doesn't work. And that was a, a very much an open invitation to go and explore, knowing that we had our, our backs covered to the downside. And so... And that's very interesting, Eric. Don't mean to interrupt there, but that, that built-in insurance and kind of, of safety net that you had the foresight <laughs> to, to have um, is is new. I haven't heard of I haven't heard anyone else talk about this, but it's a very interesting strategy in allowing you to probably focus on what you truly wanted and, and needed to do versus the fear um, because you knew the worst thing exactly what it was and you had yourself covered. So so I just wanted to point that out because it is it's a new um, angle on on how to tackle why not now but carry on. I think that's really yeah. cool that you did that. Well, and let me let me couch that in a couple of of quotes that resonated at that time. One was uh, JK Rowling's you know sometimes rock bottom 
is a very good place to start a new foundation. Uh, another quote that really resonated with me was uh, Soren Kierkegaard's All Change is Preceded by Crisis. And that's the one that I really wanted to attack is, is I didn't want others to have to go through what I went through to arrive at a new conclusion. I, I thought, is there a way to share a message of openness, of tolerance, of love, of inclusion, of creativity that isn't driven by a system of meritocracy and achievement and dividing and conquering? And not either or, but yes and. And so that was really where I approached this from uh, when I first started almost 15 years ago. And I, I changed my operating system uh, from a system of scarcity, which is where, you know, conservative and uh, security and accumulation comes from is, you know, I need to protect my uh, power, my prestige, my possessions. And so I'm living from a place of scarcity. And once I lost all that and realized that that was not the proper operating system to live uh, a human life, I switched over to this operating system of abundance. Even though I didn't have anything at that point, what if I viewed the world as if there was enough? If there was, it was just about sharing, it was about giving, it was about interacting and loving. And so I changed my definition of success. You know, instead of sending my kids to Ivy League colleges and having uh, a 401k so that I could retire with security and be at the top of my game and respected in business rooms. It went to what if my definition of success was having a good meal with my family around the table at the end of the day? And at that point, I was like, I, I can do this. You know, I, I can do that. Even if I had a crappy day, I could still unify with my family around the table, and therefore I could conclude the day, and it was a good day. So it was changing my operating systems of how I viewed success, how I viewed my ego, how I viewed the world around me. Uh, from a, a system of scarcity, which led me to ultimately pain, even though it worked very, very methodically and systematically and conservatively for a while, it was it was the wrong system that was propped up by influence and money and security. Mm -hmm. And moving over to a new system was which is uh, is that was the why not now that uh, encouraged me into a, the second half of life, the the next chapter that has been more exciting than the first chapter. <laughs> and I'm excited to dive into that. Um, the, a few things in your book really struck me, and this kind of constant role of um, the ego surfacing, you know, talking about there was even a teacher at one point that said, you know, if you can block your ego and paint what you see, you will unlock your art and, mm. and remind you at times that's your ego speaking. And it seems like that scarcity and ego is their brothers or their cousins, you know, and it's, it's such a, a hot topic, especially right now. Ryan Holiday wrote, you know, ego is the enemy and, and done a, a little bit of research around kind of ego and suffering. And mm. so if we go back to that moment when, when it was fresh and you, you kind of went from this high of rocking and rolling in the business world to, Nothing, literally. How long did it take or what was the process like to get to that why not now? Because you you used that rock bottom as a foundation, but um, was it first thinking, okay, cover our bases, go to the parents, make sure that we have a place to live and a roof over our head if this new idea doesn't work? Was it because you had this analytical background and logical operating system and then all of a sudden you embraced a completely different um, not only oper operating system, but career path. <laughs> so, yeah. so those moments were there specific moments where you remember speaking to your wife or your parents or former colleagues and saying certain things, or can you dive in and zoom in a bit on some specific areas? Yeah, my 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 parents was the last cog. So we we then backed out and approached this rationally at the at the final moment before we decided to actually take the take the leap that would have involved uh, you know additional sacrifice on our part if we were going to try and gather some investment money to create a brochure to create a website to create marketing so that was that was the step that we actually took forward in a, in another rational analytical progressive sense but it was the last step prior to that and I wish I could tell you otherwise um, it involved a great deal of darkness and suffering 
And that is the, the death of the ego. We, we, I put so much energy into um, inflating this. And I don't want to, ego is the enemy. That's a great, great title for a book. Um, ego is the enemy, but it's not, um, we, we have to develop ego as, as children. We have to understand who we are and what our place is in the world. So ego is is more the enemy as we age or get older, but we have to understand that it is, it is a silo. It's a container for who we are, um, but it's not what we're supposed to be doing in the, in the world. And so that was one of those pivotal moments that I had to really let go of, of what I had thought my ego was supposed to be. And so that death of myself was very painful and dark because I had to let go of everything that I'd known to be true. And I was able to fortunately hang on to my wife and my children through this time. They became my greatest source of strength and happiness and joy, which is what they should have been all along. That's what life should have been, but it, it had not been. So, you know, if you would have talked to me at cocktail parties in my 20s, you know, of course, I would have told you family's the most important thing to me. Oh, you know, after that, my family's most important. But my life really didn't reflect it. You know, if you would look at my, my day timer, if you would have looked at my cell phone, if you would have looked at my bills, it would have been very obvious that family was not actually the most important thing to me, even though I was saying that it was. And so I really... I think had to be brought to my knees. If it would have been just a little knockdown or a little setback, you know, when the going get tough, the tough get going, uh, lean into it. It was, this was something that I was trained to be alpha dog strong. You know, men don't cry. Uh, this was, this was something that I was taught to, to push hard. And I was the hardest pusher of anyone. Uh, I, I was raised in a very, uh, athletic upbringing, uh, focused, disciplined, uh, school grades, accountability, structure uh, that was all part of what I was raised to understand that a man and that my place in the world was was meant to be. And it built me a very good first level, uh, built me a good foundation for how to, to navigate, but it was a very ill-conceived foundation for uh, joy and for things that I said were the most important things to me, like love and like family. And so it, it wasn't a little knock that sent me uh, into this. It was it was falling completely down and realizing that, gosh, I need something new. I I cannot live the second half of my life trying to just recapture what I had in the first half. That was not interesting to me any longer, and it actually made me angry and frustrated that I'd bought in so deeply into this idea or this concept of the American dream. Because for me, it the way I had set it up, it ended up turning into the American nightmare. It turned into my own personal nightmare. And I no longer wanted to participate in that, in that system of consumeristic meritocracy. I know exactly what you're talking about. That's <laughs> the first time I've heard American nightmare, but it's it rings pretty true because... Uh, I went through a, a long span of time where the outside really wasn't matching the inside, and and it looked great from afar. But now I'm grateful to have to have had kind of all the wrong things happen and all the right things at the same, not exactly the same time, but sometimes all the wrong things have to happen to push us into a different phase. And and so if we then fast forward, and you took off on a different path, but at the same time you had this foundation that. And these resources that I'm sure came in very handy. But let's talk a little bit about that. And I know that will lead into the spark and the grind. But here you are, you pursue art. I do. And, and art is, you know, when I first started painting, when I first started doing art for the first time in my life, I was 30 years old. And so I didn't have a master's degree or I didn't have the technical skill. I didn't have the foundation that most artists would uh, approach the game with. But what I realized very early on, because I didn't go to art school, is that art for me was really not about producing a product at all. It was about producing thinking. It was about being able to think laterally. It was about being able to expand my consciousness, to be able to navigate ambiguity skills by which to be able to master complexity, all of those skills by which I'd never been taught. I was taught to divide and conquer, to be able to study for the test, to memorize 
standardized formula and then be able to regurgitate them at the exact right time for professors or teachers or in the business meeting or on sales calls. It was much less of a freestyle, improvisational, spontaneous, intuitive experience with challenges. And so what art did was it gave me the ability to think laterally, to be able to create. And so I started painting. I also, you know, at, at, at the point that I, I kind of came up with this concept that art was actually different than I'd been raised to believe it was. It wasn't a a skill that was judged on a test. It was a process like philosophy. Um, it was uh, creativity itself was an art, just like language is an art, just like being an entrepreneur is an art. And so that was that was the thesis, and that that's what led me out on the speaking tour, uh, the speaking circuit is because as I came up with these philosophies, it was more than just painting or writing poetry or sculpture or photography. It was an operating system of abundance and an operating system of thinking and being able to think agilely and having the, the mental dexterity by which to be able to adjust and then refocus and contract and execute ideas. And so it was this idea of expanding out large and then contracting and focusing. And I was spending a lot of time around artists at that point. And they had these amazing, brilliant, uh, unique ideas, but they lacked a lot of the structure and discipline and accountability to actually um, amplify those ideas or translate those ideas to scale. So they might've had a beautiful singing voice, but they didn't know a lot about getting gigs or about how to create exposure, how to create marketing, how to create a brand. Mm -hmm. And so I watched these very, very talented artists, singers, poets, painters, really become self-absorbed. Uh, they became depressed. They became frustrated because the world didn't get them. They had the skill. They had the talent. But they didn't have the knowledge on how to translate. And so these beautiful songs stayed in their studio. They didn't get out to uh, bars or concert halls or CDs and uh, CDs back at the time. They don't exist anymore. Um, <laughs> but that yeah. that was what I realized is it wasn't one or the other. You're not either creative or analytical. It's a marriage of the two. It's yes and. And that foundation that I had been raised with was actually very, very helpful, very, very valuable for me in understanding how to then build a brand and amplify art, amplify creativity, amplify innovation, and be able to help others who are more analytical understand creativity from a different perspective. And those who are creative to be able to understand analytics and discipline and structure and brand and sales and marketing a little bit differently and that they work together. They don't, they're not separate opposites that don't, uh, we don't have access to. So a lot of this, this convergence of your previous world, even though you, you might've shed the operating system, a lot of your, um, this, the aggregation of what you had learned <laughs> and what you were gaining and maybe what you had thought you'd lost, but really, um, of being able to apply that and the resourcefulness into this next phase was huge. So it's not like you, you'd lose everything. There's always, there are always assets probably to re recoup. So you, and for the listeners, so Eric, if, if you just go online and, and Google his name and you will see some of the amazing uh, performances really that he does in front of these la large, large audiences. Um, it's so unique, and it's it's as a speaker myself who just gets up there and stands and, and talks. It's pretty inspiring to see how you've flipped flipped the game. Like you've you've created your own kind of playing field by performing while on stage, um, and there you know public speaking is one of the number one fears, right? Mm -hmm. uh, people in general. What and I've heard from some of our mutual friends that you're a little bit of an introvert. Eric. <laughs> so can you talk about that, that moment when you're hitting the stage? And of course, it, I'm sure it was a, a progression of a little bit smaller audiences and grew, 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 but you are now one of the biggest name speakers out there. Uh, and you've done such a great job of building your brand 
beyond just yourself, which is very difficult to do. So you, you bet on yourself. And instead of going out and creating a specific product or service type company, you ended up doing that, but probably didn't have the intention necessarily um, of kind of productizing your intellectual property the way you have. So where am I going with this? A, I'd love to know tips, things that you do before you hit the stage. Because even if people are raising their hands in a meeting and they're afraid to speak or they're doing their first speaking gig, they can learn from. And then also let's talk about what happens on stage. Sure. Um, well, first of all, you, you uh, just gave a, a, a small soundbite that I want to go back and just reference quickly. And that was that I bet on myself. And that is exactly what I did and what I continue to do now because of my new operating system is, is the first analytical rational portion of my life. Again, very necessary that this is, I wouldn't be able to have this second half brand journey exploration if I didn't have the foundation for the first half. So I'm not um, angry or resentful, or woe is me for that first half, it was extraordinarily helpful. And for me, it's about transcending and including. So I'm not, I'm not moving on and closing the chapter to my, the first half of my life that um, was very different. I'm including the parts that were very helpful and valuable. And that's the parts that helped me understand audiences and become emotionally intelligent and self-aware and tolerant. Uh, because I, I, I've seen and experienced a lot of different industries or sides of life, one much more analytical, one much more creative. And so that's where I'm bridging the gap between the two. But I wanted to go back to, yes, I'm, I'm a huge introvert. And I, I've learned to now become comfortable saying that, that I'm not... Uh, I think there's a lot of things that introverts struggle with in public settings and how they come off to other people. And now I'm, I'm understanding that, that I gain energy by being alone when I'm writing, when I'm creating, when I'm by myself, I uh, lose energy when I'm in a public setting or when I'm giving or dialoguing or at a cocktail party. And so that's not good or bad and I'll do it. I just, I realized that after I'm done at a, a public event, I'm exhausted and I need to go rest. After I'm done writing or creating or painting or thinking or meditating, I'm, I've got incredible amounts of energy and uh, enthusiasm. So one's energy sucking, one's energy giving, that's kind of the definition of introversion and extroversion. And I'm grateful for both sides of, of people, I happen to gain energy from being alone. And so that, that's just one of the things that I'm aware of and protective of when, I, when I'm on the road. When I take the stage, it is, it's not, it, contrary to what a lot of people think, it's not an, an extrovert's game. It is It is very much going deep inside myself, pulling out a message and sharing it with, with an audience and trying to fascinate them and bring them to life through various different techniques. And that's where my speaking is very different. And I say speaking, I use it very loosely because most of what my experience was with keynote speaking or lectures or teaching, it was about transferring knowledge from one person to an audience. Uh, it was about a lecture um, to tell, tell, you know, this person is is the smart one, and they're using data, metrics, analytics, case studies to convince this audience in their head what um, that these that these facts, that these ideas, that these trends are right. And for me, that that was first level. I thought if I can get there, there's another level that is emotional. That if I can tap into an audience's uh, hearts. If I can drop that information 12 inches from their head down to their heart, they become less critical and it becomes an experience as opposed to a lecture. And so I went and studied uh, entertainers. I didn't go, I didn't ever go watch keynote speakers or I didn't go to Toastmasters or I didn't go to NSA. I didn't get a speaking coach. What I went and did is I started studying rock stars. I went to see Rolling Stones, U2, Springsteen, Linkin Park, Korn. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, and then I also would go see live theater. I would go see uh, film because 
Katy Perry, Lady Gaga, Justin Bieber. I went to all and every form of live entertainment because what I saw were audiences coming alive. They were fascinated. They were cheering. They wanted to have an experience that changed the molecules in the room where the audience all became one. We all became one under a unified banner of excitement, of uh, an experience. So that was really what drove my speaking slash performing careers, I wanted to grab those elements that they use so successfully and pull that into learning. And so that's where I started using live painting, music, emotion, stories, uh, all from a little different perspective than any other speaker really was at the time and really still is. It is, for me, it's about creating an experience that blows the audience away or catches them off guard, delightfully surprises them to the upside because they weren't, they really weren't planning on becoming emotional in this business setting. They really weren't planning on having this multimedia theatrical experience in a keynote setting. And so it was all about creating aha moments for the audience, one after another. And much like, um, I don't know how much you know about EDM, uh, electronic dance mm -hmm. music, sure. but it, use, it uses algorithms. It uses science and cadence and timing to work the audience into almost a, a, a frenzy where it, bu it builds up, it builds up, it builds up, and then it releases into a defining moment. So I use that same algorithm, the, that same science that comedians use, that uh, live music or rock stars use as they create their music set in the timing, whether they're going to go ballad, ballad, uh, you know. Hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm usually in the mosh pit, so I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm using different language. I'm trying to use business appropriate language for what this, <laughs> yeah. what this would be here. But for me, it was what, what makes me come alive, what fascinates me, what makes me curious. And then bam, how do I capture that and take that into the corporate world? How do I capture that and take it into classrooms? How do I capture that and take it into healthcare facilities to educate them, use entertainment to educate them differently than they were expecting. And so that was the key that uh, drove the core of what I wanted to create from the outset for a keynote speaking experience. And it's, it's so unique and, and it's, it's edutainment, right? You're, you're slipping in, you're sneaking in some education through kind of a Trojan horse type of way, but you're truly entertaining and performing. It's, it's so awesome. And it, as, as we talk more about where you get your energy and, and mm -hmm. kind of this, this introvert, extrovert, whatever we can label all we want, but it's really about being self-aware, right, of where you get energy. How do you keep your mind healthy, Eric? Uh, that is a great question. And the one that I've learned in the last probably four years, uh, three years, uh, has been meditation. And that is very counterintuitive to what I was raised to understand was moving me someplace to a place of higher progression because it literally is the act of doing nothing, mm -hmm. of clearing your mind, releasing the past, releasing the future, and being fully present in the moment. But what that does for me is it removes all anxiety and it puts my mind in a state of expansive calm. And it is actually... I think the highest form of mental toughness and discipline to achieve living in the moment, living in the now, to be able to be contemplative. So it actually, although it didn't feel like I was progressing and moving, that's why meditation was very difficult for me. It's still very difficult for me. I understand now why I'm doing it and why I'm the most creative when I'm relaxed, when I'm calm, when I'm letting these pockets of quietude fill and expand my consciousness, expand my capacity to think, and then being able to take that and use that and focus and contract and execute. And I realize that I'm the least creative when I'm anxious, when I'm uh, concerned, when the future is uncertain, when maybe I'm worrying about the past or dreading something, is my mind constricts, my body releases cortisol. Uh, and at those times that I'm stressed, I'm not at my peak performance. I'm not at my highest level of mental capacity. And so I return to the state of mindfulness or meditation. This is just in the last 
three to four years is I'm beginning to learn the value. I still have a long ways to go, but at least I have, I think, the right reason for why it's important to me to be disciplined to approach meditation and include that as part of my day. Certainly prior to going up on stage, that's when I I go into the, the, the 20 minutes prior to me going up on stage. It's almost like preparing as an athlete uh, that I used to do. I, I will stretch, I will hydrate, and I will separate myself from every other human being and put myself in, uh, you know, it could be in the back kitchen. It could be in the green room. It could be in my hotel room, but I'm separate and I'm quiet. And then my show producer comes to get me, uh, you know, T minus four before showtime, have me completely mic'd. And then I take the stage in that space of expansive calm. So I'm not having conversations, side conversations with, uh, the MC, with the president, with the meeting planner, with the show, show producer, I'm putting my say, myself in a desired state that I'm ready to go and take the stage and to come alive and perform. It sounds like kind of thinking back to one of the, the comments you made about your operating system of scarcity versus abundance. And, yes. and it sounds like meditation really allows you to stay within that OS that you want to be in because it's so easy to revert, revert back. And mindfulness has been very new on my radar over the last year. I was just having this conversation with my brother yesterday. He said, what's, what's really kind of the number one benefit, do you think? Because we were brought up in a pretty analytical household. And, and if mindfulness was kind of put into this, this area. But I, creativity was my answer. And it allows me to access parts of my brain or energy and, and ideas that I I really haven't been able to in the past. And that's really interesting, interesting to hear. And even if, you know, people who are listening, let's say you're walking into a big meeting and it's worth probably thinking about trying that process of getting into that certain state where you know you'll perform the best. So even though, you know, you may not be walking out to an audience of thousands of people, whatever that situation is, it's it's being able to uh, to use... I come back to the operating system, you know, to, yeah. to kind of reverse engineer it into where you want it to be. But Well, and it's very specific, and I, I didn't want to discount the number of times that I rehearse and practice and research everything up before those 20 minutes. So I put in tremendous amounts of uh, work prior to those 20 minutes before I take the stage. That, at those prior 20 minutes, realizing that I've done everything that I can do to focus and get myself in the right place, to understand this audience, understand their competitive landscape, understand their obstacles and their opportunities. Now it's time for me to quiet my mind, to be able to realize that I'm not lecturing or telling them what to do. I'm going out to share. And so no longer, again, that scarcity and abundance, no longer am I responsible. It, I'm, I'm simply bringing a message and it's, does the message resonate with them? What can I do to open up the message? And it's not, you know, oh, did I say the right thing? Are my hands in the right place? Am I speaking loud enough? Do they think what I'm wearing is cool or not cool? It no longer is about me anymore, which is again, operating under that system of, of scarcity that am I doing good? Am I going to get more gigs from this? Are people going to say, uh, that was great standing ovation. We want and love you. Uh, that no longer mattered anymore. It was a matter of can I share with them in the most open, inclusive, and fascinating way. And so that's what those final 20 minutes are, are really uh, becoming aligned or attuned to what my end goal is in sharing this message, why I'm doing what I'm doing. And it really opens me up to be able to take the stage in the right place to be able to give unconditionally. And as you look forward, Eric, and you think about this question of why not now, are there any things, ideas, maybe it's personal, maybe it's professional, um, things that you've had in the back of your mind? Is there one specifically that, that you feel it's time to ask yourself the why not now question and, and think through, okay, it's time. What does it look like? What are those first steps? Yeah. It's, um, well, it's funny for me, because much of my why not now is kind of what we're discussing uh, here in this podcast. And I'm, I'm curious how your listeners are going to receive this because this is this is kind of out there for a business audience to be able to to hear these things, hear words like suffering, darkness, love, meditation, inclusion. Those aren't uh, 
business words. However, for, for me, as far as a why not now is I, I still divide and conquer. Um, and I am relentless as far as how far I, I push myself and why I do what I do in setting these things up. And so the reason that I say that is, is I'm not just an idea guy. And I do have files of hundreds, if not thousands of ideas. And I can share some of those with you in a second and say, we can go through why not now. But an example would be, I was not in great health when uh, I kind of started or had this turn of, of events. And so at that point, I said, even though my lungs were about the size of dimes, this was in 1999, um, I said, I'm going to run a marathon. And once I decide that I'm going to run a marathon, it's done. When I decide something, I cut off all other options and I push forward. And so I said, I'm going to run the Boston marathon because that's the biggest marathon there is. And I will buy a non-refundable ticket to Boston right now so that I'm held accountable that I will be running. Well, what I learned was after I bought that non-refundable ticket is you have to qualify <laughs> to be able to to be able to run in the Boston Marathon. So that was my first obstacle, but that was not a blocker. That was just an obstacle. I continued to start training. I could only run maybe three quarters of a mile at the time without fatiguing. So I had to start ramping up. I had to start eating cleaner. I had to start reading running magazines. I had to start pushing longer and training harder and understanding what this math looked like to be able to actually complete a marathon. And so I studied and I figured it out and I worked my ass off and I got myself ready. And then I flew to Boston and I this isn't going to be popular with uh, the Boston Marathon runners who did qualify, but I, what they call, um, pirated the race. And so I went out there with my kind of uh, sweats, like I was going to cheer the, uh, the runners on. And as they crossed the, uh, or as the pack came, I ripped off my sweats and jumped into the pack and ran with all the runners 26.2 miles. Now, I didn't have a number on me. I wasn't being timed for the papers or for some sort of records. But for me, that wasn't why I was doing it. I was doing it because it was on my list because I said I would and I would plow through any obstacles by which to be able to compete that. I do that sort of thing again and again and again because it's exciting for me and because I'm gaining benefit from it. Not just you know the physical benefits of you know now I can run, but because it stretched my mind and it stretched my body. And so... I do that with every area of my life is I find something that I would like to have that I, I, I say, why not now? And then I decide. And once I decide, I cut off all other options. Failure for that is not, um, is not an option. I will figure it out. Now that said, I have, I have lots and lots and lots of things that I, you know, that I see where the future is going, that I'm creating right now, that the future's just not ready for it. Like I feel like the pace of change <laughs> in our lives is painfully slow. I have so many things that I'm ready for right now, but technology can't meet me where I am. Other people and their operating systems are not yet ready. They can't meet me where I am. Um, and you know, let's say very practical things. Like I've got elaborate designs and layouts for how to use drone cameras in my show. So instead of having one long range iMag from the back of the room, I have drone cameras placed around and flying around capturing moving footage, not unlike an NFL game. So we used to have uh, in the 80s, if you were to watch a football game, a camera at the 50 yard line, follow the team up and down the line. And that's where keynote speaking is right now. You've got one camera at the 50 yard line is I want to get behind the center. I want to go behind the coach. I want to have a camera that moves up and down behind middle linebacker that, that is part of the experience. And so I have designed lipstick cameras inside my paintbrushes. Mm -hmm. I've designed uh, drone cameras. I've designed holograms that I actually interact with on stage live. Um, I've designed all sorts of things from a, a live show perspective, but technology and wireless capabilities and uh, ballroom infrastructure and rules and regulations and code and compliance 
is not yet up to where I'm at. So I'm filing those ideas. I know that eventually I will get there. I actually have all of the technology, uh, initial technology here. So I've, I've invested lots and lots and lots of money into these ideas that aren't yet ready to, to launch. But that's okay because um, creating the ideas and preparing them in advance gets, gets me ready for what's, what's going to come in the future. So those are just some of the ideas. Why not now? For me, it's never a matter of, you know, why not? Why don't I just try and lose four pounds? Why don't I try and run more? Why don't I try and be uh, more respectful to my wife? Why don't I try and grow my business in this direction? I'm doing all of those things. The why nots are the opposition coming from the outside, and I have to be patient. I have to be willing to launch towards these ideas, knowing that I'm fully committed to it. I'm investing in myself, but you know they're just not ready yet, or I haven't met the right partner. I haven't met the right colleague that's going to help be my wingman in bringing this to actuality. Very fascinating. And I think you mentioned a couple of key takeaways from what you just said. And, and the second is actually one that we haven't touched on a lot on the show, but, but the first is you lock it in, you hold yourself accountable, you do something to where you can't back out, like book that ticket or, and then you reverse engineer how you're going to do it and plow through. But the fact that you ran in the Boston Marathon as a um, non-registered or unregistered uh, runner is quite fascinating, very renegade. I think that's pretty cool. Um, But the second thing is the timing and and talking about filing some of these why not nows. So preparation and and doing, it may not be public facing. No one may know about it. There may be this kind of incubation process going on, but that's still, you live in a state of why not now. I mean, this isn't a, a challenge for you, like you said, but it's an interesting perspective of timing and being wise with it, it could flop if you tried to roll out something that just isn't ready either from a technology standpoint or the people aren't ready. Mm-hmm. And that's something I've definitely experienced in the past with um, social media, that this spark and kind of uh, romanticism around social media in 2007, 8, 9 with entertainers and sports celebrities and these individuals I was working with that was great, but a lot of the brands weren't ready yet. So when I started my company, for example, it, it was a hard sell. You had to make people believe first. Three, four years later, people bought in, but it was more challenging because it was ahead of its time and they're, you're spinning our wheels a lot, right? But anyway, the timing is being very responsible and, and strategic about the timing. Um, okay, only have a couple more minutes with you, Eric. Rapid fire around here. Um, whatever comes to mind, here we go. And the first question is, what are you reading right now? And what's your all-time favorite book? <laughs> I am I'm re-reading, re-reading uh, Lynn Twist, The, the Soul of Money. Uh, that was hugely influential for for me very early on, uh, very early on from 30 on as I was changing that operating system and understanding what money really was. So the soul of money is it's an ongoing read because it's not a um, it's an energy. It's an understanding for what money is. It's not to, for me. It wasn't meant to be siloed or accumulated like I had been doing. It was meant to be shared and it's a tool. And so it's not that money is good or bad. It can be both very good and it can be very bad, but how my relationship with money is what is most important. So that I'm, I'm rereading that, uh, best books. I've, you know, the Josh Wichkin's, uh, book, the art of learning, I, I think is one of the, for me personally, one of the best books I've read. I, I'm hesitant to put it up there in the best books of all time mm-hmm. uh, until, until I sit with this a little more because it just impacted me so much. And the same thing with Lynn Twist's book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning mm-hmm. by Viktor Frankl. Sure. Uh, because the reason those books are so impactful and important to me is because they're not tactical, which is what most uh, books right now, business books are, they're tactical, they're strategic and, uh, you know, give me actionable substance that I can use in my job right now. And that actionable substance to me doesn't mean anything unless you have the right operating system, unless you have man's search for meaning, unless you know 
why you're going, where you're going. You can be dividing and conquering and kicking ass, but going in the wrong direction. And so that's why those books on philosophy are more important to me. I read articles and blogs and ideas on tactics, social media, branding, selling, uh, sharing, performing. Uh, it's very important to me to remain up to date on all those things, but they're not worthy of a book um, that's going to change lives. They're worthy of tactics that could change a business uh, direction right now, but not an overall operating system philosophy of abundance. That's a great framework for deciding kind of what state you're in and deciding what to read. It's, it's very cool. Um, and, and so next very important question, pirates or ninjas? Who's tougher? <laughs> ninjas. Uh, ninjas just seem more ethical to me. Pirates, <laughs> pirates feel more, uh, if it feels good, do it. Take what's mine. Ninjas feel crafty and stealthy and subtle. So I'll go with ninjas. Fair enough. Uh, what keeps you up at night? Anxiety. Um, and, you know, maybe at some point in my future, I'll be able to share at scale um, how fear, anxiety, mental health, um, our media all play a role in, for me, causing me um, tremendous amounts of pain and anxiety that I don't share with the world because that's not my job right now. But I, I would like to, at some point in the future, be very honest and open and vulnerable about my pain and suffering that I still have on a regular basis that my wife and I work together to overcome together to be able to continue sharing because that anxiety that keeps me up at night could also keep me in bed and not get me out of bed. It's that, it's that crippling um, unless I have techniques and systems by which to be able to work through those anxieties. Very interesting. It's, it's, it's so cool to hear your radical honesty because, you know, a lot of people probably just see the, the outside lens and, and wouldn't imagine that would be your answer. But final question, what advice would you give to your younger self? And you can choose the specific age. Uh, stay curious. I, oh, I think I there, that. there is, and this is, this is throughout. I could tell my 10 year old self, my 19 year old self, my 28 year old self, and myself right now, uh, when I, I have a tendency to develop tunnel vision, you know, like when I decide something, I am, I, I put my head down and I focus with laser intensity on finishing that task. And once I focus that uh, intensely on one element, I lose curiosity for other solutions to that, uh, maybe solving that challenge or seeing other challenges. And so being able to remain curious in a number of different capacities, not just the single one that's interesting me most at that point. But uh, I, I feel like any lack of creativity in my life is just a lack of curiosity. And so if it's the ambiguity of Snapchat, if it is what's cloud computing, if it's how do we build a brand in an increasingly noisy environment, if it's global politics, if it is, you know, internal friction with civil war in our own country, how do I continue to remain curious and not uh, divisive, not toxic, not one-sided, to be emotionally intelligent and self-aware and to back up and to be able to see this from everyone's perspective and not just my own cognitive bias or uh, self-fulfilling prophecies or narratives, to be able to pull back, remain emotionally intelligent and curious. I love it. That's one of my favorite words <laughs> in in the entire dictionary is is curious and curious curiosity uh, it probably stems from curious george when i was little but i i concur wow that's that's awesome this has been incredible i could sp speak with you for hours and your new book the spark and grind i love it it's it's really um democratizing you know if you think you're a creative person but not a um a grinder then you can look at this book. And if, if it's the inverse, this book obviously helps too. But it's um, having both and that resourcefulness that you've, you've created from bridging the first part and kind of phase one to phase two is, is really well done. So thank you. My pleasure. And it's, it's the, to me, it's the yin and the yang. 
of constant creativity and these uh, elements that seem like polar opposites, you know, creativity versus analytical or rational or action or discipline. What I realize is, is there more complementary opposites in, in like male and female? When, when a male and female comes together in union or marriage, they actually are drawing the best out of each other and taking the whole marriage to an entirely different place that they could not have achieved on their own. And so that's the way that I view the relationship between discipline and creativity is rather than separate polar opposites, as they come together, they come together to draw out the best in each other to create something wholly new that wouldn't be achieved on its own. So that was the metaphor of the spark and the grind. Uh, it's the system by which now I live my life. And so it wasn't necessarily an idea for a book. It was capturing in real time how I view this dynamic tension between creativity and discipline. Love it. Love it. I can't wait for, for everyone to read. Definitely going to put it on my shelfie club list. So shelfie, not selfie. Take all those <laughs> books. Um, and thank you so much, Eric. Like I said, I'll be following along and hope to have you on again down the road. I would look forward to it. Thank you very much, Amy. I appreciate your time. And I appreciate it. If anyone else is still listening at this point, uh, sincere thank you from, from me uh, for, for going that deep. I know what it takes to get that deep into a podcast. And I'm just, I'm just grateful if you're still listening now. So thank you. One of my key takeaways from that conversation was when Eric talked about operating systems and how he, he really had to change his operating system and, and the way he looked at success and how he viewed success. And going from that scarcity to abundance was really interesting to me. And I think that that's, that's a, a challenge to a lot of us to consider, you know, what operating system are we using right now and does it need to be updated? Just as we would update our phone <laughs> to the next version, to the next iteration, and, and evolve, it's, it's kind of a, a great time to take stock and think about your own operating system. Make sure you check out The Spark and the Grind. It is definitely on the Shelfie Club. The Shelfie Club, as a reminder, is our book club. Use hashtag Shelfie Club for the books that you like, and, um, and we'll make sure to include them on the list. But the spark in the grind is cool because it, a lot of us tend to think of ourselves as either a creative individual or a creative mind or a business mind. And Eric makes a point that we really need both. And it's not either or, it's and. Uh, and, and the spark in the grind is just a, it's a great way to kind of change your frame um, of thinking it's one or the other. So check that out. And also... I'm reading a book right now called The One Thing, and it's written by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. I'm enjoying it because I need it right now. This is exactly what I need. Uh, the One Thing is not only about focusing on one thing at a time, literally, instead of multitasking, which, by the way, we can lose up to 28% of our day when we multitask. So multitasking is not a good thing. It is not productive. It is not efficient as much as, as we think so sometimes. But also the one thing meaning kind of at that umbrella level, are you focused on too many things is, is a question to ask yourself. It, I am oftentimes. I have shiny object syndrome. <laughs> and so I tend to easily get distracted and, and wowed <laughs> uh, into different directions. But the one thing, pretty quick read. So far, I'm like a third into the book. I'm enjoying it. It's pointing out some things that are very tactical, yet great reminders. So that's another one for the Shelfie Club. And talked about books. Might as well talk about music for a second. Uh, you may have heard my husband, Richard Grewer, sing his single One City on the Tony Robbins episode a couple weeks ago. His new album actually drops this week. So check out richardgrewer.com. And you can hear everything. Also, he's on Spotify and a lot of other places. So um, you can find him on the interwebs. Another quick shout out to a band I just became familiar with. I just spoke at a, a media summit, an entertainment media summit, and a band called The Federal Empire performed. I'm a new fan. I love, love them. 
you can also check them out on on Spotify. So a uh, couple quick plugs on some music there. I want to hear what your why not now is. Please share it with me on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Amy Jo Martin. I'll send a signed copy of my New York Times bestselling book, Renegades Write the Rules, to the first 200 people who listen, rate, and leave an honest review of the podcast in iTunes. And you'll also get a free month subscription from our friends at Headspace. This is only available to Why Not Now listeners. Once you've left a rating and review on iTunes, just email your iTunes handle name and your mailing address to whynotnow at amyjomartin.com and we'll get your package in the mail to you. For detailed show notes, head to amyjomartin.com forward slash whynotnow. That's where you'll find links to things we discussed on the show, special offers, and how you can keep in touch with guests. Hat tip to my buddies Ash and Devin at Rock Salt Music for our tunes today. You just listened to the talented John Coggins in Let's Go and Let It Ride. And a jump high five to my talented husband, Richard Gruer, for producing the show and being patient with me. See you next time. Until then, why not now?